In the year 28 AD, a young man named Jesus in his early 30s began a preaching and teaching tour of a little region known as the Galilee in a country known as Israel or Palestine. It's a part of the world that we might actually call a flyover state. The large, important, and powerful nations such as Greece, Egypt, and Assyria that surrounded this region took absolutely no notice of him. His sermons, or even his band of followers that would travel with him from place to place. And why would they? For a little under three years, just three years, this young man spent virtually all of his public life with a handful of disciples, a minority group of followers within a minority group called the Jews. Now, sure, he performed healings and signs and wonders, and people clamored from all around to touch him and touch the hem of his garment, to hear a word of inspiration and encouragement, but this would have been no concern to the Roman Empire or to the Greek institutions or to the other global geopolitical powers of the day. They were used to idiosyncratic crazy people touting off their unsophisticated ideas and nonsense to, you know, their gullible listeners. I mean, as long as they paid their taxes, submitted to the authorities, and kept civic order in accordance with the law, who really cared? And should these teachers of wisdom get out of hand or perhaps, you know, gather a group of people to overthrow the government? Well, that's why we have crosses. Crucifixion is the perfect deterrent and detergent wiping clean the Roman Empire of any infectious religious diseases, ideas, and revolutionaries. In fact, in almost all revolutions, the execution of the leader was sufficient enough to eliminate the movement. You see, Rome knew exactly how to keep the peace. Now I say in almost all revolutions, because there is this one exception, about three years after this young man of Galilee began teaching and preaching, he made his way to Jerusalem. And in a series of symbolic acts, he declared that the expectations of the people were about to be fulfilled. And this would mean the complete upending of the current world order. The people were finally to be freed and liberated and everything, including culture, politics, entertainment and the economy were to be radically reshaped and reformed into a new world order, a new kingdom with a new ruler, not the despotic and corrupt emperor with his policies of oppression, cruelty, and blasphemy, and not the current religious institutions either, for they too had sold themselves and the people to those very same powers corrupting their religion and making it a system of oppression and exclusion rather than the blessing and gift of Yahweh that it was supposed to be to the world. And so people rallied and shouted and waved symbols of revolution and cried in the streets that a new name, a blessed one in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was going to overturn and overthrow Herod and Caesar and Caiaphas and Pilate. But upon recognition of the threat to the empire this Jesus was instigating, Rome did 
what Rome does. Because when in Rome, and every Jew of that day knew that while their feet were on the literal dust of the promised land, the political reality was that they were in a foreign nation. And that nation saw every threat as a nail to which it wielded its hammer of crucifixion. And when they hung this Jesus on the cross, what followed was textbook. Despair, hopelessness, the agony of disappointment, the tragedy of yet another failed Messiah. I can only imagine seeing Jesus' naked, bloodied, and dead body, pierced and beaten, hanging barely six or seven feet off the ground, and feeling the agony of utter, quite literal, gut-wrenching, excruciating pain. As an act of compassion, a wealthy dignitary named Joseph of Arimathea took the body and placed it in his family's tomb, where dead revolutions go to rest. And it was over. Go home. Go back to fishing or masonry or tax collecting or whatever it was that you did because this hope was dead and in the ground. Perhaps another day, perhaps another leader, but certainly not this day and not this leader, certainly not this Messiah. The final word was ironically spoken by Jesus himself. It is finished. And so are we. For two Easter's, 2020 and now 2021, we've been holding services online because of a microscopic virus that has to date taken the lives of 2.8 million people worldwide, almost 570,000 of those just in the United States. We have for this past year witnessed the worst pandemic in 100 years. And there are people in our community that have lost friends and family members to this disease. In addition, we've also witnessed the corruption of power manifested in greed and political machinations that are designed to oppress some for the benefit of others. And we are still grappling with the isms of prejudice and contempt. And for many of us, the pain and the disappointment of religious institutions that has left us disillusioned, disenchanted, and for some of us, devastated. Now, there are those moments when you simply need to grieve, to be angry, and to cope. There is a time, as Ecclesiastes tells us, to mourn and to weep. And I hope that our church community continues to be a safe place where we can hold the space for the suffering, the agony, and the feelings of loss, and the pain of absence. Grief is, after all, part of the process we all need to journey through in this chaotic and sometimes brutal world in order to not lose our minds. But then there are days like today when we remember that grief does not have the last word. Despair does not have the final say. Take a breath. Look again. The tomb is empty. He is not there. He has risen. Now, now wait a second. The last word we got was that it is finished. Done. It's over. Historically, crucifixion and burial was the final word. Rome had done its job. Everyone just go back to normal. 
But what Rome didn't know and even what the disciples didn't realize is that there is always the word after the last word. In an act of biblical poetic majesty, the word that was at the very beginning has now risen to be the final word. The word that is spoken after the last word of death. This, the word of life, the word of creation, the word of resurrection, is what we speak today after the last word we have received. There are many of us that are frequently overwhelmed at the darkness and the death that seems to never let up, the corruption and the injustice that seems absolutely relentless. There are those moments when disappointment and disillusionment seem to be the status quo. You're in good company. We're in good company. I imagine this is precisely the feeling of the early disciples on Saturday. But on Sunday, when the women went to anoint the body, an affirmation of the last word that they got, there was an angelic message waiting for them. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. <laughs> and that, my friends, is the final word. The word that is spoken after the last word you get. So whether it's injustice and corruption playing out in our politics, death and greed playing out in our economy, disenfranchisement and profit playing out in our medical systems, or abuse and exploitation in our religion, all of those do not have the final say. Resurrection declares there is more to be said. There's another word rising up out of the ashes, out of the grave, out of the tomb. There is a redemption that is to be had, a reconciliation to be made, a rescue to be deployed, a new life to affect and infect every area of life where there is death and decay, and a love, a radical, transforming love that absolutely changes everything. We will continue to spend time holding the space for grief and walking unconditionally with those who are going through difficult times or pain or sorrow. But my friends, on this day, this day of resurrection, we don't just hold the space, we call upon Jesus to transform it. And we walk into that space into it and through it to the other side, to the work of God rebuilding God's good creation, the restoration of God's image in all people, and the reestablishment of God's love. The brokenness of our world does not consume us. That's resurrection. And because Jesus refused to stay in the tomb, we refuse to stay in the space of despair. Three days maximum. That's all you get. But then, we rise up by the power of God's Spirit and the presence of Jesus to come out from underneath whatever buries us, to turn, in the words of Bono, the grave into a groove. The early disciples thought it was finished. It wasn't. The Roman government thought it was defeated. It wasn't. This day, Resurrection Sunday, was the beginning of the end of all that had wreaked havoc and chaos upon the people. And we today are both benefactors and stewards of this same resurrection. 
commissioned and called to live this new life into this world, to give people a final word after the last word that they have received. The dead has come back to life. Pastor Mark mentioned with the Esau Macaulay article earlier, this may not seem to make sense to some. By what logic does this make any sense? Good question. On this Sunday, the answer is, we're not supposed to make sense out of it. We're supposed to make life out of it. On this Sunday, we're not supposed to try and fit this story into the rules of the universe. We're supposed to go and live this story, deploying this new life into all the far-reaching corners of our world to upend the rules by which many in this universe live. The rules of extracting all that you can, of disenfranchising the other, of oppressing someone who is different, of marginalizing those who do not measure up to our fabricated standards, of favoring the rich and the powerful. These and many other rules of the universe do not have the final say. Resurrection says we're going to speak another word after that. And that word that we speak after that, the last word, will bring life, resurrection, new hope, new shalom. So my friends, what was the last word that you heard? Perhaps it was the doctor's report that wasn't any good. Perhaps it was a news report that wasn't very favorable. Maybe it was a tragedy or an abuse. What was the last word that you got? I will tell you those last words can be really powerful in our lives. They can bury us. They can overwhelm our sense of hope and they can really do damage to our ability to flourish. On this day, however, the day that Jesus rose up out of the grave, resurrected out of the tomb, on this day we speak another word after the last word you received. Death, destruction, decay, grave, you will not bury me. You will not bury us. You will not have the final say. There is a new life to be had, a new hope that is dawning, a new love that is more powerful than death, a final word that is spoken that renders the last word powerless. And my friends, as Jesus rose, so may we. As Jesus did not stay buried, so may we. As Jesus resurrected, so may we. As we come to communion on this day, we take these elements to commemorate the covenant, the bond and relationship we have with Jesus, which is bound by his sacrifice. This covenant extends from his life, through his death and burial, and now to his resurrection, an agreement that we together, Jesus and us, will live as transforming agents in this world. And may we never forget. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.